as someone who covers Georgia politics, did you ever expect it to be like this right now? I've only been doing this job for about a year. And it's been crazy from the beginning. You know, (laughs) I went from impeachment to coronavirus to elections. So it's just been crazy. I don't know, not crazy. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, the runoffs in Georgia and why they've become a national race. All right, let's start the show. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. You are listening to It's Been a Minute. Happy weekend. We are, what? two weeks or so removed from Election Day 2020. I would say we made it, but as you know, Election 2020 is not over yet. Donald Trump's campaign is still contesting vote tallies across the country. But we're not going to talk about that this episode. What we are going to talk about is another piece of Election 2020 that is not over yet. Two runoffs for the U.S. Senate, both happening in Georgia this January. Right, two Republican incumbents. Here's the math heading into them. 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, meaning Democrats need to win them both. 50-50 means Vice President Harris would break the tie in the Senate. To figure out what's really at stake, I called up a reporter covering both of these races, Tia Mitchell. Tia is a Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And to start, I asked her to break down who the candidates are. In one runoff, there's incumbent Senator David Perdue, a Republican. He was one of those outside candidates who had never run for office before. He is facing off against John Ossoff, a Democrat. A lot of you guys remember him because he ran for Congress in 2017 in a special election, and he lost then in a runoff. In the other runoff, there is incumbent Senator Kelly Leffler. She's a Republican, and she was appointed to the role after an unexpected Senate vacancy. She's only been serving for almost a year. She is up against Raphael Warnock, a Democrat. Even though this is his first time running for office, he's been an activist on progressive issues. So with all eyes on Georgia right now, I had a lot of questions for Tia. So I was reading the other day that already in these two races... More than $120 million has been spent. And that number will only grow between now and the actual runoff, which is what, early January. How big of a deal is that amount of money in these races? And what does that look and feel like if you're just a person in Georgia? Is it just bombarding you everywhere you go? Absolutely. Um, That's what Mm. it looks like. (laughs) Especially if you're, you know, one of those super voters, you're getting... Mailers. Wait, who's a super voter? You know, me. somebody who like votes all the time. I might not be using the right language oh, for it, but I like it. I like <laughs> a it. frequent voter who, you know, can be counted on to show up. But gotcha. just in general on TV, you're seeing these four individuals, Ossoff, Warnock, Purdue, and Leffler, at every commercial break. And when you turn on YouTube, you're seeing digital ads. Um, But it also means that there's a lot of attention on Georgia. You have a lot of national media sending their reporters to Georgia to cover the race. And so, I mean, in some ways, I think it Georgia finds it cool to be the center of attention. It's something that <laughs> Democrats in Georgia have been saying, like, pay attention to us. We, yeah. we can be, make a difference. And uh-huh. it's finally coming true. Yeah. I've been hearing about a lot of progressive activists just flocking to the state right now. The GOP also just sending folks down as well. Do Southerners like all that outside influence when they're getting ready to vote in a very important race, two very important races? 
So I think it's interesting because, you know, Republicans usually point the finger at Democrats and say, look, you're raising all this money in California and New York um, mm-hmm. for Georgia races, and you're bringing all your carpetbagger friends in, you know, to try mm-hmm. to influence our Georgia races. But now Republicans are doing the same thing. You know, they have a 50-state <laughs> fundraising strategy that they oh, wow. just launched. And, you know, they're sending folks to Georgia, too, because it's so crucial. I think for Georgia, for, like, the residents of Georgia, it's not so much about who's saying what at this point. You're not changing a lot of minds. It's yeah. turnout. It's getting mm-hmm. people to show up, to cast their ballots. We haven't even talked about the whole attack on Georgia's election process and how that may or may not influence people to participate. Because if you're a Republican for the past few weeks, you've had the leaders of your party tell you that Georgia doesn't know how to run an election. There's also this conundrum that Republicans face on trying to maintain excitement from Trump voters until this runoff. And for that reason, some folks believe Republicans have been slow to tell Trump he lost his election because they don't want to upset Trump because that might mean upsetting his supporters. From what you can tell, which side seems more juiced up right now in Georgia, Democrats or Republicans? So that's what you hit the nail on the head. It's a very delicate balance on the Republican side. As much money that is already being spent and as much attention that's already on Georgia, I still think we aren't at premium juice levels yet. You know what I mean? Like everything is going to ratchet up once absentee ballots start getting mailed out and once early voting starts and things like that. But right now, the Democrats have a much more cohesive message in this buildup period, whereas Republicans are split. Again, like you mentioned, Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue are very clearly falling in line behind President Trump. So they've called for the Secretary of State to resign, even though he's a fellow Republican. And they've cast doubt on the validity of the election process in Georgia in ways that other Republicans worry could depress turnout. But Purdue and Leffler don't want to lose Trump's support and they don't want to turn off Trump's supporters. So they're, they're kind of clinging to what President Trump's talking points are right now. Mm. You know, at least nationally, Democrats in Georgia seem to have a more unified face. You know, everyone on the left has fallen in line behind Stacey Abrams and her work to mobilize potential progressive voters and black voters. Is that portrayal of solidarity actually true for Democrats in Georgia? Yes, for right now, Democrats are much more unified because the stakes are very clear for Democrats. Either you win both seats and you help President Biden with his, you know, new administration, or you lose either one or both, and that makes it much more difficult for this president that Georgia already helped deliver, you know? So Stacey Abrams is such a high-profile voice, Um, not only because 
she has this playbook that everyone's crediting with, you know, providing a blueprint for how Democrats can compete in Georgia. And she's turned out to be right in a lot of ways. But she also has her own credibility she built up when she ran for governor in 2018. And and the thing that made her really special then was she campaigned statewide. Georgia has 159 counties. That's a lot. Yes, a lot. <laughs> wow. Stacey Abrams visited every county when she was running for mm. governor because her philosophy mm. was, I might not be able to win a majority of voters in this county, but there are some votes I can get. Yeah. You know, there are so many interesting data points in the Georgia results this November and possibly more interesting data points to come in this runoff in January. You know, we saw black voter turnout increase almost exponentially in some instances in the state. What, in your mind, are the biggest demographic stories come out of Georgia right now when it comes to these votes? So Georgia's demographics are changing, particularly in the Atlanta suburbs, becoming more diverse, more people of color, younger voters, making the state more democratic. You know, right now, Republicans still control the legislature, the governor's office, and all statewide elected offices. But you have this one recent bright spot for Democrats with Joe Biden carrying the state. And they're hoping that this trend will continue. But the other thing that really helped Joe Biden win Georgia was college-educated white people who... Hmm particularly in in Atlanta suburbs, but all across the state, you know, they had soured on President Trump and were willing to give Joe Biden a chance. So Hmm. that's, again, something that is going to be a data point we look at in this runoff because, you know, in one race we have Purdue versus Ossoff. There is an age difference, but they're both white men. But Hmm. in the Leffler Warnock race, there is a different racial dynamic there with Warnock, a black man who's a pastor of a black church and who has championed very progressive issues very publicly in a way that Republicans are using to, you know, paint him as a radical progressive, whereas Kelly Leffler is a white woman, a wealthy white woman who lives in Buckhead, the posh Atlanta suburb. The question is, where white people fall in these races can help determine whether Democrats can win. Thanks again to Tia Mitchell. She is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. All right, coming up, what's next for the left after election 2020? This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, a sustainable fashion brand committed to making holiday shopping easier on you and on our earth. Allbirds has you covered with planet-friendly gifts from head to toe. From their signature lines of soft and cozy shoes like wool runners to sweaters, socks, and underwear, carbon footprints are listed on every product so you have all of the info you need to give a gift that's better for the planet. Learn more today at Allbirds.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Amazon Prime Video with Small Axe. Small Axe is a collection of five films from Academy Award-winning director Steve McQueen, starring acclaimed actors including John Boyega, Letitia Wright, and Sean Parks. 
based on real-life events in London's West Indian community between the 1960s and 1980s. Each film tells a story of courage, family, and resilience. Small Acts, new film Fridays, now through December 18th, only on Amazon Prime Video in the U.S. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I just interviewed former President Barack Obama about dealing with falsehoods like birtherism, facing obstruction in Congress, and why he's still hopeful about American democracy. The episode is now in the Fresh Air feed. So, my next guest. I brought them on to talk politics. But we had to start the same way all conversations start these days, a discussion of COVID. And I wondered with them when, if ever, things will feel normal again. The question isn't the vaccine. It's when when do you feel comfortable going to see your favorite mm-hmm. band next exactly. to 20,000 people in Madison? When is Coachella back? Yeah, when is Coachella back? <laughs> yeah. When is, when is, yeah, when can Kevin Hart tour not in his living room? <laughs> that's, that's mostly what I'm worried about. Those are comedians W. Kamau Bell and Hurry Kundabolu. Kamau is the host of the CNN series United Shades of America. And Hurry created and starred in the 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu. On top of that work, Hurry and Kamau host a podcast together. It is called Politically Reactive. On the show, they react to politics from a progressive point of view. So I brought Hurry and Kamau on to talk about what this year's election results mean for the left, for progressives and for the Democratic Party going forward. I think, honestly, first question, what does it say about the state of the left that it wasn't a clean sweep, which many Democrats thought they might get going into Election Day this month? It says a lot about the infrastructure of the the Democratic Party. I mean, I feel like this constant desire to look for the middle, like try to it's like you had Clinton and you had Obama and you're still going towards the Clinton model? Like, that's what I find so strange. It's like instead of a really charismatic figure that is going to mobilize, you know, the the progressive left as Obama did, it's like, well, let's try to get these moderate Republicans. And so we won this election, but it it didn't win over, you know, and activate a lot of the left. I mean, I think a lot of the the progressive left was activated by our hatred of Donald Trump and not our love of Joe Biden. Mm. Come on. But I think it's also about when when the left is like we we didn't it wasn't a clean sweep. Often I think it's about who was running, not about the ideals. Because in Florida that Trump won, they also got fifteen dollar minimum wage. I mean, I think we haven't said enough. Oklahoma elected a non-binary Muslim millennial. Oklahoma. <laughs> so like it's like I think yeah. if you find the, the right people who have the right ideals then you can have success. And I think a lot of times there's sort of a negotiation for the middle. So like, I don't, I think that's, it's the people who lost, not the ideals. I, one of the questions I've been grappling with since election day is which flank of the left won, quote unquote. And I say, and I'm using left and progressives and Democrats interchangeably. I know some listeners won't like that, but bear with me, you know, but all of the things y'all have said, I still have questions like, Joe Biden was this candidate who couldn't help lead Democrats to a clean sweep. But he also got more votes for president than any other candidate in the history of America. (laughs) Was it like so like what does it all say? Is there one clear message for the left slash progressive slash Democrats in this aftermath? Is it 
go more to the left? Is it go more to the center? Is it get more charismatic candidates? Or is it kind of a grab bag of like lessons to be pulled from this? Definitely a grab bag of lessons. I mean, I think like, look, Donald Trump also got a, a lot of votes uh, as well. So this is less about, I think, motivation as, as much as uh, access to voting. I mean, the mail-in ballots made a huge difference. So mm. I think it's a victory for, kind of for, for everybody in some way because we stopped the bleeding. You know, this election, I was pro-tourniquet, you know. Who's going to stop the bleeding? A Democrat <laughs> will stop the bleeding. Okay, that's a step. From here, we can build. Uh, I So uh, I think that maybe we haven't stopped the bleeding yet. We think we we think we have a chance to stop mm. the bleeding. I think right now Biden's like the surgeon who's like, I'm ready to go in to operate. And they're like, you can't come in the room yet. Meanwhile, Trump's in there like every kid who plays operations. You know, so I think there's an Le- Leaving his forceps in there. Yeah, yeah, I think there's an opportunity to stop the bleeding. So I don't think we're there yet. I do think that um, that it is a victory for acknowledging the fact that once again, black women at the core of the Democratic Party are the ones who did this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when you talk about black women, black voters and the Democratic Party, it leads to this larger conversation about the way race is working for Democrats right now. I think for a long time, there has been this assumption in democratic politics that, quote unquote, demographics is destiny. And as the nation gets blacker and browner, of course, Democrats win in that formula. But we've seen in these election results in some parts of the country, one in three Latino men voted for Trump. Almost 20 percent of black men voted for Trump. There are parts of the country in which people that Democrats expected to get on their side went for Donald Trump, even after years of really harsh rhetoric on race. What is the lesson there for Democrats slash the left slash progressives? Just because you speak the same language doesn't mean you agree on everything. I mean, <laughs> like, that's obvious. But like, how come everyone's like, I don't understand. We expect the Latino vote to go this way. But in Florida, the Cubans voted that way. And the Mexicans voted this way. And the Puerto Ricans voted. Yeah, because they're not from the same place. They're different. They're different. <laughs> yeah. They speak the same language. But that doesn't mean they're the same. And, you know, one way... We can explain that to people is that, hey, you know how America, a lot of us speak English and we don't agree on everything? Yeah. (laughs) A language (laughs) is a way to communicate. It doesn't mean that you have a set of values that are ingrained in the language. Yeah. Yeah. I also think there's really a misunderstanding about how some immigrant groups come into this country and what they're looking for. And I think, and what the, and what their history means. Natalie Morales on Twitter put this great Twitter thread together about why she believes that Latino immigrants come into this country and often vote Republican. And it's because the ways in which democracy has been framed in the countries they come from, they're afraid that that means socialism and the way in which the right in this country has said the Democrats want socialism. Yeah. In the aftermath of this election and all these issues that we've just laid out being very clear and present for Democratic Party leadership, What should those party leaders be doing differently going forward? Those mostly coastal, mostly white Democratic Party leaders. Maybe they should travel to the rest of the country. I think they should be packing their bags and getting out of the way. Or that, that would be, (laughs) I I guess, I was thinking realistically as opposed to what I would prefer happen. I just like, what would you prefer? I think it's time to pass pass the baton. Yeah. You know, there there was an interview with uh, AOC in, 
by the way, which is another example about how out of it, like no one's using NP for Nancy Pelosi or CS for Chuck Schumer. Nobody, you know <laughs> what I mean? We can start that. We can start that No here. one's going to know what we're talking about. NP, oh, no problem. Uh, kind of. Um, but, yeah, but AOC had this interview in the Times and she's like, people are blaming uh, progressives for losing, you know, losing seats and stuff like that in this kind of discussion of what is viewed as socialist policies. And she's like, that's not why y'all lost seats. The Democratic Constitution lost seats because none of you have like working social media and web pages and didn't use <laughs> any of the infrastructure that Barack Obama built in 2008. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The Trump people, they're using social media. They're using Facebook. You know, there is something to be said about like this, you know, generations are a lot quicker. Like I already feel like my brother, who's two and a half years younger than me, he almost feels like another generation because he had the internet two years longer. Now, you take 20 years of the internet, new technology, a bunch of things have happened that change the way different like groups, five years apart, see the world. And then you got like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. You're telling- No, no. NP and CS. <laughs> My apologies to NP and CS. Some, some intern had to, I'm sure, show them how to use Twitter. So I hear this critique of the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Do y'all, in the aftermath of this election, have any critique for the more progressive wing of the left? I mean, I'm already seeing so many stories where Democrats of all stripes are kind of saying, did we need to call it defund the police? <laughs> like, <laughs> do you have any critiques of the left flank, the hard left flank? I, my only critique is they didn't start calling it defund the police during Jim Crow. That's my major critique. And I've heard, I, I was just in a conversation about this this week, and because I, I, I know some white people. Uh, I'm married to one of them. And the thing about like, Sam, did you lose your NPR funding because Kamal said that? <laughs> I think we'll make it. Stay tuned. <laughs> but like the idea that like defund the police is too harsh. I was like, yeah, but you guys didn't listen. Every other time we tried to say, please stop beating us, stop killing us, you didn't listen. So guess what? The critique gets harder. And I was somebody who heard defund the police at first was like, Ugh. and I was like, what am I afraid of? And I so for me, it's like. If you're afraid of the idea of defund the police, what you're telling me is you haven't Googled it. So I don't think, I think the, the whatever, whatever the progressive wing, they're going to keep raising the stakes the more that the moderates don't listen. I mean, ultimately what we're asking for is what you're going to eventually allow us to do, which is have a level of equality and equity and justice. It's going to happen. We don't want to wait a hundred years because especially now we don't even know if the world has a hundred years. So like, give it to us now. Enough is enough. You've had the, the, the country, the planet for that's too long. That's a good campaign slogan. Give it to us <laughs> now. I don't know. I think that's a little, Put that on a little bit aggressive. Stickers. I think I would say, borrow it for a little while. Can we do that? May I have it now? <laughs> Can I have it? May I borrow it? For a week or so, and then I'll give it back. And if it's in good condition. Can I have a test drive yeah. of democracy? Uh, NPCS. Hope y'all are listening. They have no idea that's them, though. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris is like, is he talking about me? <laughs> All right, you two. This was fun. Will y'all stick around uh, through the break? Because afterwards, we're going to play my favorite game, which is called Who Said That? Sorry, I can't do it. But thanks for asking. Oh, goodbye, Kamal. Oh, you can't? Of course I can, Sam. <laughs> oh, you can't? Okay. I was really scared for a second. It's like, no, this is the fun part. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
This message comes from NPR sponsor HBO. Don't miss the new HBO special event, Between the World and Me, inspired by the acclaimed book by ta Coates, featuring powerful readings by Mahershala Ali, Angela Bassett, Jarrell Jerome, MJ Rodriguez, Black Thought, Courtney B. Vance, Susan Kalechi Watson, Oprah Winfrey, and many more. Stream the new special event on Saturday at 8 p.m. on HBO Max. This message comes from NPR sponsor Spotify, presenting Dare to Lead, a new podcast from Brene Brown that builds on the research from her number one best-selling book. Every Monday, hear conversations with change catalysts and culture shifters, people who are innovating to create a better world within their workplaces, homes, and communities. Drawing on years of research, Brene unpacks what it means to show up and step up with courage and vulnerability. Dare to Lead is available only on Spotify. Download the Spotify app for free to listen. If you need a break from the news, Pop Culture Happy Hour now has you covered five days a week. We're here to help you find new TV shows, movies, music, books, and video games to keep you company in these difficult times. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders, joined by, gosh, two great guests who I'm going to allow to introduce themselves. Go ahead. Tell our listeners who you are. I'm uh, I'm Hari Kundabolu. And I'm three-time Emmy Award winning host and executive producer, W. Kamal Bell. That's why you didn't want to go first. You, were, you wanted to drop that on me. Okay, I'll see your nothing, and here's three Emmys. <laughs> And together, the two of you host a podcast called Politically Reactive. All about uh, politics and reacting to it. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. So um, every week on the show, I play a little game called Who Said That? Ooh, that? Who said that? I share three that? quotes from the who week of news, that? and you got to tell me who said it. Uh, will y'all play? Yes. Y'all are going to face off against each other. Is that going to be weird? Two guys who are friends that host a podcast together having to compete against each other? No, we're all, we're basically in competition with each other, so it's not a problem. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, then let's just get to it. Here is the first quote from this week of news. Tell me who said it. Hey, guys. I'm here at American Idol Confessional. I met Ryan Seacrest today, and I have my audition soon. So stay tuned for that. Very, very nervous, but very excited. Um, She's a child who has two parents that are involved in politics. Both of her parents are on different sides of Donald Trump. Uh, but they're still both Republicans. Uh, oh, it's, uh, oh, it's, uh, she's on TikTok. She, uh, yeah, Conway. Conway's Conway, Conway, daughter. daughter. Uh, Which in her Laura name Lynn is? Laura Conway. No, Tam- no, starts with Tammy, a C. Uh, Claudia, Con- Claudia Conway. Claudia Conway. <laughs> Claudia Conway. So Claudia Conway, the teenage daughter of Kellyanne Conway, former advisor to President Trump, and George Conway. He is a lawyer who has been opposed to Trump very publicly for years. Uh, their daughter, Claudia, after really making a name for herself on TikTok, trashing her mother basically for working for trump she's now trying out for american idol hey guys i'm here at american idol confessional Woo! um i met ryan seacrest today and how surprising is this development for you too not at all <laughs> <laughs> this is america what are you talking about yeah i gotta say 
when Kellyanne Conway announced that she was leaving the Trump White House to spend more time with her family after Claudia was ranting and raving on TikTok, I said, you know what? This is not over. I said, they're not going to go quietly into their home. All three of them, I think, want to be famous. Yeah. All right. Who got that point? I did. I did. Come I on. Did. Come on. Got that I did. Oh, whoa. Okay. Did. You did. You did. You did. All right. Next quote. You're not ready for this trailer. You couldn't be ready for this trailer. Happy Thanksgiving. It's a 90s sitcom coming back to Fresh streaming. Or coming to streaming. Yes, yes, yes. Will Smith. Will so Smith. Will S- he Will didn't Smith. say Will Smith. I said, oh, no. oh, oh, oh. No. How game shows work, everybody. Jordana and Anjali, my colleagues, are the judge on this call. Who gets that point, y'all? Tell me. Uh-oh, uh-oh. They're typing. <gasps> How does he get it. in say Will Smith? Because mm. they want tension for the third question. Oh, okay. Well, actually, it was a split vote. One of them said Kamau. One of them said Hurry. We're, we're going to give you both. We're in, Wayne Ca- we're in Wayne County now. Is that how we're doing it? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So anyways, that quote comes from Will Smith. He's been all over the place the last few weeks promoting uh, Fresh Prince coming to the streaming platform HBO Max. You're not ready for this trailer. You couldn't be ready for this trailer. Happy Thanksgiving. It actually hits HBO Max on November 19th. That is Thursday of this week. And I got to say, I'm excited that it's coming back. I love Fresh Prince. I loved Fresh Prince as a kid. But I'm not sure I'm going to sit down this weekend and watch a bunch of Fresh Prince reruns. Are y'all? I might. You might. Okay. I, might. I mean, I've always said that, like, the thing that can get me through a six-hour flight is if whatever airline has like all the Fresh Prince episodes. You just stack about six or seven of those in a row and then you're good. But Uncle Phil's not there, so it just feels a little weird. Uncle Phil is dead. But for this reboot, they brought back both women who played on Viv. (gasps) Light-skinned Aunt Viv and dark-skinned Aunt Viv back in the house. They got both the Aunt Vivs together. They seem to be on good terms. Uh, But honestly, what I want to watch is the next chapter of Fresh Prince where the dueling on vivs come face to face yes <laughs> so now it's that's now what it's I like want. directed by jordan peele okay so now- <laughs> <laughs> all right last quote um no hints for this one you just gotta guess it i just held up a map and i just pointed to all the places i got to go in the world and all the things i've gotten to see because of them and i said how do you repay people like that and i said oh well how about a million bucks? Who said that? George Clooney. All Thank right. You. I okay. win. Game over. <laughs> I have a Google alert for George Clooney, so I know this story. Wait, 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 wait. why do you have a Google a alert for George Clooney? Okay, I don't really have a Google alert for George Clooney, but my wife is a huge George Clooney <laughs> fan, so I think I probably read enough George Clooney stories that Google sent me this story. Okay. <laughs> Can we edit this into a tie? Mm-mm. George Clooney. <laughs> Man, I'm going to let, because I don't like to make hard decisions myself, <laughs> it's up to my colleagues, and they'll let me know at the end of this who won. But first, to explain Anjali, that quote. Anjali, come on, Anjali. Oh, my God. Oh, this is, I'm a black voter in Detroit right now. <laughs> well, you know what it was, Kamau? The signature on your last answer didn't match the signature on your driver's <laughs> oh, license. Okay, that's fair. That's, that's reasonable. That's very reasonable. All right, so that Clooney quote, that came from an interview he gave to GQ recently. 
And he was telling the story of how he gave 14 friends each a million dollars in cash in a little bag. Um, according to Clooney, he did this in 2013 as a way to thank his closest friends for being his closest friends. So he got $14 million in cash. He found a place in an undisclosed location in downtown Los Angeles. And then uh, he brought a van that said florist on it and loaded it up with the $14 million in cash. But here's, here's, here's where it gets so bougie. Not that it wasn't already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Clooney says, quote, I bought 14 Toomey bags, and then I packed in a million bucks cash, which isn't as much as you think it is, weight-wise. He got Toomey bags? Listen, if I get my friend a Toomey bag, that's, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's, that's it. it. That's you got it. a Toomey bag. The other part of the article that was clear, they, that the article I read said that, just to be clear, this was before he had his new money from his tequila company. Oh so he, yeah! They're like it was basically like he's don't worry guys he's well more than he's made way more than that money back like don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Have y'all tried his tequila? What's it called? Uh, Casamigos or whatever. I'm not a tequila drinker. I had a bad run in with tequila the first time I ever drank alcohol. So. <laughs> what are the two are you going to name your tequila company? Ooh. Or brand. That's my last question for you. <laughs> I mean, Tequila Mockingbird seems to be the I can't beat that. He gets he gets that point. <laughs> tequila Mockingbird. I'm into it. Uh, this has been a pleasure. W. Kamal Bell, Hari Kondabolu, host of Politically Reactive, a podcast you should check out. I'm really glad that we had this time together. Oh, I haven't fun. laughed this much. Since the before times. <laughs> You're welcome. It's great, Sam. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey, Sam, this is Teresa. The best thing that happened to me all week was playing tag with my three-year-old and my mom. We were all just laughing and laughing and laughing, and it was definitely the most fun that I've had in a while. Hey Sam, my name is Haley in Portland, Oregon. The best part of my week was that I adopted a little kitten. He's a black fluff ball and his name is Henry, and he is the joy of my life right now. Hi Sam, this is Quincy in St. Petersburg, Florida. The best part of my week is that my new rollerblade wheels and bearings came in the mail. It took me a few months just to find blades in my size, and then I got so excited that I rode them every day, and the wheels got destroyed. So I was anxiously awaiting new ones and bearings to come in the mail, and now I'm able to get back out there in the Florida sunshine and do what I love every day. Hey Sam, this is Tex. I just finished hearing this week's show, and... Uh, it has been a really tough three months, last three months. And I've been storing so much angst and so much pressure inside me and just hearing the stories of other people being thankful. I'm in the car and I just burst into tears all by myself. And it was a really good cry. It was something that I needed to do, my body needed to do it, and I, just, I feel really thankful for it. So I just wanted to thank you for that. And I wanted to thank all of the other listeners that give the time in the day 
to say thanks again. Thanks for the show, Sam. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sam. Love your show. Bye. Ah, games of tag, kittens, rollerblading, really good cries, all amazing things. Thanks to all of those folks you heard just there for sharing. Tex, Quincy, Haley, and Teresa, you all warm my heart this week. I appreciate it. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment as well. At any point throughout any week, just record the sound of your own voice on your phone telling me the best part of your week. And then send that file to me via email at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss, NPR's senior VP of programming, is Anya Grundman. And very special thanks to my colleague, Mathilde Piard. She is our podcasting marketing guru over here at NPR, one of this show's greatest advocates, and always trying to find ways to get this show in people's ears. Thank you, Mathilde. Listeners, till next time, stay safe, be good to yourselves. We'll talk soon.